Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Dietetics After Dark. Your source for food-related crime, scandal, and fraud. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. And this is Dietetics After Dark. Yes. And today's episode is going to be jam-packed. Becca will start off by telling us about nutrition research and covering some of the challenges and ethical considerations that scientists have to make when conducting nutrition research. And then I'll cover the infamous Minnesota starvation experiment that helped us understand the physiology of starvation and still has huge clinical implications today. Becca, is there anything you want to chat about before we dive right in? I mean, not really. I'm, I am really excited to hear more about this story because it is something that, I mean, we learn about in our nutrition degrees. I've researched really high level for one of our previous episodes, but it sounds like you have a really juicy episode for us. It's so interesting. I had such a good time researching it. Amazing. And I'm so excited to tell you. All right, let's do it. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a registered dietitian in your area. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes. This podcast may contain coarse language and mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. 
This is an independently produced podcast. If you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So as Sarah said, to start this episode, I'm going to tell you a little bit about nutrition research just in general, some common issues that have either previously occurred or that currently occur when it comes to studies around dietetics. And then why it's so important to understand where this data is coming from. Now, we're so used to being bombarded with headlines about nutrition, but nutrition science is still fairly young. So the first vitamin, which was thiamine, was isolated and defined in 1926. So that's less than 100 years ago, which is wild. And a lot of the initial nutrition research was around singular nutrient deficiencies. So things like scurvy or beriberi. So studies looking at how nutrition impacts chronic disease, like heart disease or cancer, uh, those are even more recent, having really only taken off in the last like 30 or 40 years or so. This can be somewhat frustrating for sure, since guidelines and best practices continue to change as new evidence becomes available. But it is important that our practices as future healthcare professionals and just humans in general continues to be updated as our understanding of things evolves as well. So this is one of the reasons that I personally love dietetics so much. I feel like there's still so much to uncover and learn. So it's really, really never boring. Don't know if you feel the same way. I do feel the same (laughs) way. Feels like there's endless amounts of learning to be done. Mm -hmm. And I think you could say we both like to learn. I I, I would agree. Got a couple (laughs) degrees under our belts. And constant podcast research. That's true. (laughs) Okay, so there are many different ways that you can obtain nutrition data, but what is deemed the gold standard in forming causal relationships are randomized control trials. And these are where participants are randomly assigned to one of two groups. So either the experimental group that receives the intervention or the comparison group that receives the alternative or control intervention. And this might sometimes mean that there's no intervention at all. 
These are on the top of the research hierarchy since exposure to the nutrition therapy is completely random here. So participants don't know which group they're in. Therefore, bias Mm -hmm. is often lower and results are often more reliable. However, randomized control trials are not always ethical. For instance, the participants aren't always able to give proper consent to treatment since they're unaware of what treatment they are going to be given. Therefore, you can't put either of the groups at any known risk. So, for example, if they're, if we were like conducting a study on the effects of gluten in individuals with celiac disease, we can't give one group a gluten-free diet and the other group a diet with gluten since the harmful effects of gluten on these individuals is well-known and documented. So this right. would be deemed unethical. So it's like the do-no-harm principle. Exactly. And I found it interesting because in my research there was one example of a study that would kind of fit into this unethical category, and I thought it was kind of humorous. I don't know if it was an actual study, but it's the effects of parachutes on skydivers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so you can't test that, right? Because we know yeah, that the harm sure. of not giving somebody a parachute would likely be death. Devastating, yeah. So that's just kind of another example of what would constitute a very unethical study. Definitely. <laughs> So because of these ethical considerations, there are some flaws that currently exist in nutrition research, and it can be really tricky to establish causal relationships between certain things. So oftentimes, nutrition research will rely on self-reported data, so like food journals or questionnaires, and this type of data will look at things that can't really be measured using biomarkers or that would be incredibly expensive to assess through observation. So this will be things like food intake over time, food behaviors, or like eating patterns. And this might present some issues since participants may falsify results for a variety of reasons. So for instance, they may make their answers sound more socially acceptable than what they really do. They may not interpret the questions as they are intended to be interpreted or they may not remember certain details of what's being asked of them. Like, for instance, if I were to ask you what you had for breakfast last Monday, could you remember? Absolutely not, no. (laughs) I feel like especially during another lockdown, all the days kind of bleed together. (laughs) Okay, so there's even a phenomenon that's called the white coat effect, which is where the presence of a physician or a researcher increases one's blood pressure. So even just having a participant in a research environment or waiting room kind of filling out these questionnaires, it might impact your results through uh, your participants' mood or anxieties. And I actually think you mentioned white coat effect in one of our other episodes. Do you know which one? I can't remember, but I remember you mentioning it. I feel like I did too. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it's, I think it's true. Well, it is true. Yeah. But I can like, I can relate to it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like I can feel, you know, like if you're talking to your doctor and you're like, you know, when you smoke or when you drink or something, you're less likely to be (laughs) truthful about it. I feel like anyone of authority makes me nervous. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Even professors and stuff, I feel like they're somewhat like celebrities in my eyes. Mm -hmm. It's hard to approach them. Yeah. In undergrad, when like the classrooms were bigger and you get to know these professors through their lectures, yeah. but then you have to talk to them about a certain assignment and you get all nervous because they know nothing about you, but you know so much about them. Totally. (laughs) Okay. But self-reported data, so like what I was just talking about there, it can also be incredibly useful. Uh, And it was actually the self-reported data of pregnant women that initially demonstrated the association between folic acid intake and neural tube defects. So that's cool. Yeah. 
So this was later tested and a causal relationship was determined, but it started out with women reporting their intake and birth outcomes. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Um, So despite its flaws, this type of research can have many, many more benefits, but it is just really good to question the headlines when things like red wine decreases heart disease kind of come out. And just ask yourself, was a causal relationship made or did the researchers look at self-reported data on wine consumption and follow up with participants at certain points to assess health outcomes that may or may not be related? Yeah, for sure. Okay, it can also be incredibly difficult to isolate a single ingredient or nutrient from a food or from one's diet to be able to find a cause-effect relationship in the body. So this isolation likely has to happen in a Petri dish, and in reality, there are many other factors that come into play with everything that we eat. And I'll give you another example. Uh, So we know that antioxidants can help delay the oxidation of cells, but there is little evidence that an antioxidant supplement will have the same effects as foods with antioxidants. And this is likely because other substances in these whole foods increase the effectiveness and benefits of the antioxidants themselves. The same goes for fat-soluble vitamins. They're better absorbed Mm -hmm. when combined with fat. So just like a lot of the things that we eat rely on other things to help with transportation and absorption. Um, So it's incredibly complicated. And it's so challenging to study the effects of one specific nutrient because we don't eat nutrients Mm -hmm. in isolation. We eat food. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's so interesting. It is for sure. It makes it a little bit more complicated, but it also makes it very fascinating. I feel like one day we will have more information on on this, but for now, it's kind of a cool process figuring it out. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Okay, so lastly, and not lastly just in general, but lastly in my little intro here, there's still so much to learn on research, and I feel like we could do a thousand podcast episodes on it. But one other thing to consider in nutrition research is that many preliminary studies are often conducted on animals. Now, the results of things like rodent studies can be incredibly beneficial to establish, but before the same tests are conducted on humans, we should question them a little bit. Like, would the same testing and factors even be applicable to human beings? Um, It also leaves out a huge qualitative component that is really important in human research, and that is how we feel when certain things happen, like the immediate feeling of our stomach hurting or us having a headache. These are really difficult to measure in animal studies. But one of the many benefits to animal studies is that compliance is a lot easier with animals than with humans, if you can believe it. (laughs) Yes. There's also a lot of information about human health that we wouldn't have without animal tests, such as some of the preliminary research around energetics, carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, body composition, and growth. And I mean, this whole section isn't to tell you that you shouldn't trust nutrition research because it truly is incredible what we have been able to figure out so far. But you should evaluate where the information in the news is coming from. And we've discussed this a thousand times before, but news headlines will often take the results of a study and spin it to sound more factual than it actually is. And really, we just need more information to kind of establish that cause-effect relationship if there even is one. Yes, totally. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get... The only way to really establish a causal relationship is those randomized control trials that you talked about at the start. And they're so hard to do an ethical randomized control trial in nutrition. 
Yeah, they take time, they take money. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this in some of our classes and stuff before, where once a relationship is established, it is actually harder to get funding for certain research to to put into it and to continue to study that that relationship. Yeah, because they want novel findings. Yeah, they want new discoveries and yeah, novel mm-hmm. findings. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. It was really interesting. And I, I think nutrition research, I've heard it criticized just like on podcasts or in conversation for being kind of a, a shitty science, basically. Mm-hmm. But it's not a shitty science. It's a new science. It's, a no, it's evolving. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It is amazing how much, like especially researching this story, it is amazing how much we've learned within in less than a century. Yeah, less than a century. When was thiamine discovered? Nineteen twenty one or nineteen twenty six? Nineteen twenty. Hold on, twenty six. Less than a hundred years. That is wild. Mm-hmm. And now, like, we sell vitamins by the bottle, and many people take a multi. Mm-hmm. Cool. It is really cool. Okay, so now I am going to talk about a very interesting study that would not meet the ethical standards of today's research ethics. And before I dive in, I'm going to place a content warning on this story because we do talk about hunger and starvation in the context of World War II and also in the context of the Minnesota starvation experiment. And there will be some details about calories and weight loss that might be triggering for some people. Okay. Shout out to my main three sources for this story. I used an amazing book, by Todd Tucker called The Great Starvation Experiment, Ansel Keys and the Men Who Starved for Science. And it was so well-written. I intended to just look at this one chapter of it and I ended up reading six chapters. Oh my gosh. It was was really interesting. Like I would read the whole book. A journal article called They Starved So That Others Be Better Fed, Remembering Ansel Keys and the Minnesota Experiment by Leah Kamm and Richard Semba. And an article from Medium called What a 1944 Starvation Experiment Reveals About 2020 Food Insecurity by Kelsey Miller. Oh. All of which are linked in our show notes. That last one sounds incredibly interesting. I'm excited. It was so interesting. And it talks about food security. It talks about COVID and it talks about diet culture and how all those things are tied to deprivation in some aspect or the fear of deprivation. Super good article. Okay, so to set the stage for this story, I need to take you back to one of the most devastating time periods in recent human history. 1941 to 1945, aka World War II. So throughout the war, hunger was used as a weapon. And cities and countries around Europe experienced extreme man-made famine conditions, mostly due to German blockades that cut off the food supply to major cities. Two famous examples that I am going to very briefly discuss because they're really terrible are the siege of Leningrad and the Dutch famine or the hunger winter. Leningrad was a city of 3.5 million in the Soviet Union and today it goes by the name St. Petersburg in Russia. The siege of Leningrad lasted 872 days and sometimes it's also referred to as the 900 day siege. And it started in September of 1941. Supplies were extremely limited right from the start, and highly restrictive rations were implemented almost immediately. But even with rations, the death toll was between 1.1 and 1.3 million people. My God. Yes. Um, it's, it's truly terrible. The starvation experienced was extreme. 
Reports from Leningrad indicate that as the food supply dwindled, prepare yourself. Civilians survived by first eating pets and birds, then making soups out of leather belts, book bindings, and wallpaper because potato starch was used in book bindings and wallpaper. And murder rates spiked as people would murder other people for ration cards. And yes, some people were forced to resort to cannibalism. Oh my gosh. That that sentence just got worse and worse. I know. Worse and worse and worse. It was truly, truly awful. That's all I'm going to say about that because it was a lot pretty intense to research. The Dutch famine, or the Hunger Winter, took place over the winter of 1944 to 1945. Again, because of a German blockade that cut off food and farm supply shipments. And again, absolutely devastating effects, but not quite as severe as Leningrad because the duration was shorter. And what's interesting about the Hunger Winter is that it took place in a developed country, the Netherlands. And so it was well documented. And it actually played a role in helping to measure the effects of famine on human health. So there's a famous study called the Dutch Famine Birth Cohort Study that found that children of women who were pregnant during the famine were more susceptible to chronic diseases like diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, and other health problems. And they were also smaller than average. So there were long-lasting intergenerational effects of the famine, even in those who weren't technically alive to experience it. Wow. So I feel like that was probably one of the first studies in this area, right? Would that, that would have mm-hmm. been in the like 40s or 50s? Yes. So that was during the war. I believe it was, it started being studied while it was happening. So mm-hmm. towards the end of 1944, 1945, and then it was a follow-up study as well. And yeah, it was one of the first in this area. So by the end of 1944 and early 1945, the Allied forces, which includes the U.S., were beginning to enter these war-torn countries and the militaries were encountering all these emaciated, starving civilians from these countries and they needed to know how to help them. And this is also occurring at a time when relatively little was known about how to deal with refeeding people who have undergone a severe degree of deprivation. So all of this suffering and death at the hands of hunger was catching the interest of scientists and militaries around the world including one young physiology professor at the University of Minnesota, who also happened to be a consultant to the United States War Department, Ansel Keys. Ansel had two main questions. One, how are civilians affected physiologically and psychologically by extremely limited diets? And two, what would be the most effective way to provide rehabilitation after the war? To answer these questions, Ansel proposed a bold human experiment that would subject a group of 36 healthy young men to a six-month period of semi-starvation and then rehabilitate them. It's shocking to me that this study got approved. I know. Desperate times and different ethical times. But also, so I know it it seems really crazy that this got approved, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But every account that I read discussed how Ansel Keys was like very aware of how extreme it was. There was a lot of open discussion between the participants and the people running the study. And I'll talk about this later, but the people who were in the study really wanted to be there. So they wanted to help out. Yes. With, okay. 
They really wanted to be there. And in a follow-up study, I think it was 60 years later, none of them regretted it. They all were happy that they could do their part during the war. And do you you have, and I'm sure you'll get to this later, but do you have information on these people? Okay. Okay. Yes, definitely. I'm excited. (laughs) Okay. Before I dive into the story, I want to tell you more about Ansel Keys because I knew about him in relation to this experiment, but I did not know how significant the contributions that he made were to many areas of science. So nutrition science, but also physiology, biology, anthropometry, which I always have a hard time saying. I want to say anthropometry, anthropometry. Anthropometry. I don't think I've ever said that word before. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's anthropometry, epidemiology, and even ichthyology. Do you know what that last one is? Maybe the study of icky things. Yeah, it's not a bad guess. And depending on how you feel about fish, it could be true. (laughs) So it's the study of fish. Oh. Um, I know. So he was all over the map and successful in all of these areas. It's pretty wild. So Ansel Keys lived 100 years. He was born in 1904 and died in 2004. And throughout his life, he made major contributions to nutrition, science, and public health. As a kid and a teen, he was very busy and always trying out new things. He had a series of unusual jobs, including cleaning bat guano, aka poop, out of desert caves in Arizona, and working as an oiler on a ship bound for Shanghai, Manila, and Hong Kong. He then completed an undergrad degree in economics and political sciences. Then he got a master's degree in zoology. Then he got a PhD in oceanography and then a second PhD in physiology. So he was kind of all over the map. And I I like it as someone who bounced around between degrees a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say it sounds like us minus the two PhDs. Minus the two PhDs, yeah. (laughs) Some of his major contributions to science included studying adaptation to high altitudes, uncovering the link between serum cholesterol and heart disease, coordinating the first ever multi-country epidemiological longitudinal study in nutrition and health called the Seven Countries Study, which is pretty famous. He also was a big fan of the Mediterranean diet for a healthy lifestyle, and him and his wife co-wrote multiple cookbooks. And he developed the K-ration to feed the U.S. military during World War II with energy-dense but physically light food. And of course, he formed the foundation for our understanding of the physiology of starvation. So we're going to talk a little bit more about those last two. First, the K-ration. So during the war, Dr. Ansel Keys was asked by the U.S. War Department to come up with a lightweight but energy-dense, non-perishable meal that could be used as an emergency ration for troops. So Ansel developed the K-ration which contained about 2,842 calories for the entire day and 79 grams of protein and included a breakfast, lunch, and dinner ration. The breakfast ration contained a can of chopped ham and eggs, a dried fruit bar, some biscuits, sugar, and instant coffee, four cigarettes, water purification tablets, chewing gum, and toilet paper. So basically everything you need on the front lines. Yeah. The cigarettes and gum are strange. Strange in today's standards, but at the time, I feel they were probably pretty normal. (laughs) Chewing gum, I think, and they use chewing gum in this study as well, I think, to lessen the feelings of hunger or to 
give the illusion of eating something. The lunch K-ration contained a can of processed American cheese and bacon, biscuits, five caramel candies, some sugar and a salt packet, four cigarettes, a book of matches, and a packet of powdered drink, so lemon or orange, and again, some chewing gum. And dinner contained a can of beef and pork loaf, some biscuits, a 57-gram sweet chocolate bar, a packet of concentrated broth, toilet paper, four cigarettes, and some chewing gum. So they're getting 12 cigarettes a day. How many cigarettes are in a pack? In the K-rations, it was just four. Wow. it's a lot of cigarettes. Yeah, I know. It's a lot of cigarettes. The K-ration was designed to be used for short periods of time as it was not nutritionally adequate to sustain active men over a long period of time, but it was really successful and had pretty good reviews from those on the front lines. And legend has it that the K-ration is named after the K in keys because he invented it, but some say the letter K was actually just chosen at random to differentiate it from the many other rations that were available at the time. So quick question, and you might not know the answer to this. When somebody was given this amount of food, would they get the amount of food for the day? Or was it like breakfast, lunch, and dinner separated? They had to go and get it at separate times of the day. I, I don't know the answer for sure, but because it was designed to be lightweight, I think they were carrying these all three on in their backpacks at once mm-hmm. because it was designed for specific missions where they couldn't really receive deliveries. Gotcha. So I think maybe they'd have a wagon or something. I don't really know the details, but I, I think it was designed for special missions where they wouldn't have access to regular food. Okay. No, that makes sense. I actually, my mom was helping clean out my Baba's place, my grandma, and she's in her 90s now. And she actually had some rations, like some little like ration cards, which I thought were the coolest things. That is Um, cool. So she had a bunch of meat ones left over. So I guess she wasn't really eating as much meat as she should have been. But I thought it was so fascinating. I was like, okay, we need to hold on to these. Where was she during the war? In uh, like Niagara area. Oh, okay. So they were Canada ration cards. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, so after his work with the U.S. military creating the K-ration, Ansel was hooked. He really wanted to study nutrition more, especially the physiological effects of starvation on humans. Simultaneously, the U.S. military also had great interest in learning more about starvation because they were preparing to enter cities in Europe and expecting to encounter emaciated civilians, and they really wanted to be able to help rehabilitate them. And Becca, I know you know this, but I think maybe some people don't know this because when you think of someone starving and then you give them food and they should be fine, right? (laughs) But it's actually really quite precarious to refeed someone after a period of deprivation because their bodies have been so deprived of nutrients for so long that when they eat again, the electrolyte balance can be completely thrown off and it can be fatal. So it's it's called refeeding syndrome, and it, it does have to be done in a very controlled manner. And there are a lot of long-term effects of starvation, which we will talk about today. So there was a lot to learn in this area, and Ansel proposed his daring starvation experiment, and it got approved. In the United States, in the summer of 1944, healthy young men were not exactly in high supply. Most were either preparing to fight in the war or they were already overseas fighting in the war. However, there was a group of young men in the civilian public service who were conscientious objectors. 
Conscientious objectors were young men that did not want to fight in the war, but that does not mean that they were cowards. They were exercising their right to refuse to fight on the grounds of freedom of thought, conscience, or religion, and many of them simply refused to kill another person in the name of their country. That's fair. That is totally fair. And it didn't mean that they didn't want to help their country. They did want to help their country. They just didn't want to kill another person. And so they would become a conscientious objector and join the civilian public service, and they would contribute to the needs on American soil, like firefighting, forest maintenance, and volunteering for medical experiments. So in the summer of 1944, a brochure was sent out featuring three children with empty food bowls, and we'll put the picture of that on our Instagram. And it has the words, will you starve so that they be better fed? And despite the warnings in the brochure that said starvation can pose serious health risks and that the long-term effects are largely unknown, they received more than 400 applications from conscientious objectors. Wow. Ansel and his team conducted over 100 interviews, and in the end, they chose 36 healthy men in their 20s that had been carefully screened for mental and physical toughness. So no history of any anxiety or depression. Most of them were receiving higher education. They were in university. They were athletes. They were very well-rounded and stable young men. That would have been difficult to assess, wouldn't it have been? Like, I feel like there was such stigma. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Especially compared to today's standards. But I think, I mean, they had psychologists on the team. Mm -hmm. They did their best to make sure that they were selecting young men that were extremely stable and really wanted to participate in the experiment. And I know that you know the whole story, but do you think they did a good job at this or were there any issues? There are a lot of issues. Okay. But not in their selection of participants, but you'll see. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting so, not antsy, but excited. <laughs> this is so fascinating so far. Like I, this is so much of history that I either knew like very, very little about or didn't know anything about, so... And nutrition, it's like history of nutrition is so fascinating to me. Yeah, we should really researching this. We should really get a history of nutrition course added into the undergrad program. Right? Mm -hmm. Because it provides a lot of that context, you know, when you're like, why don't we know this for certain? Or like, I don't know. I feel like the context helps answer a lot of the questions and helps you think about where we are in terms of nutrition science as well. Yeah. And it's only covering about 100 years or so. Yeah, it's really not that long. No. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about the study itself. On November 19th, 1944, the men moved into a large dormitory-style room located under the University of Minnesota football stadium where they would be living, eating, showering, and essentially doing everything in the same shared spaces for the next 12 months. So there's very little privacy. The first phase of the study was a three-month control period. So participants were fed approximately 3,200 kilocalories a day, made up of a variety of popular foods. So this was designed to get participants to their normal, healthy baseline weight. And then the second part of the study was the semi-starvation period. And despite its name, it's actually not a starvation study. It's a semi-starvation study because the participants were being fed 
they were they were maintaining a calorie deficit, but they weren't entering starvation. And this period began on February 12th, 1945, during which the participants were fed about half of their previous caloric intake at approximately 1,800 calories per day. During this phase, the meals were modeled after what victims in war-torn Europe might be eating. So potatoes, turnips, rutabagas, dark bread, which I'm going to guess is rye bread. Likely, dark yeah. rye bread. And macaroni. Finally, the last 12 weeks of the experiment were considered the rehabilitation phase, where participants were assigned one of four rehabilitation diets that varied based on energy intake and protein and vitamin content. And remember, the primary goal of this experiment was to hopefully find the best way of rehabilitating someone after a prolonged period of starvation. So that was the goal. Throughout the experiment, the men had to imitate regular life. So they were required to maintain an active lifestyle, including working and studying. They were actually allowed to take courses at the University of Minnesota, which I think many of them were very excited about, and most of them did. And they were also required to walk or run a minimum of 35 kilometers a week, or about 22 miles. This meant that during the starvation period, they were experiencing a daily deficit of about 1,000 to 1,200 calories, which is very significant. Mm -hmm. And this was designed to achieve a progressive decrease in their weight so that over the six-month semi-starvation period, they would lose about 25% of their body weight. That was the goal. The men were also required to work, and many got part-time jobs in town or on campus. And at the start of the experiment... Participants were also allowed to have unlimited chewing gum, sugar-free, I assume, it didn't actually say, and black coffee. The men were also subjected to extensive testing throughout the experiment, including body weight and body fat assessments, physical fitness tests on a treadmill, heart size, heart rate, blood volume, hearing, vision, coordination, oxygen consumption, blood samples, and even sperm count. The men also underwent regular intelligence and personality tests from psychologists, and each participant was required to keep a personal journal. Okay, this sounds exhausting. It's a lot. But they're, they, they're full-time, and they're being monitored pretty much all the time, except when they go to their part-time jobs and take their courses. But yeah, it's a, it's a full year of your life committing to this study. But I can't imagine just living a normal lifestyle or like having a part-time job and taking courses and starving yourself at the same time. I can't even write a paper without like a variety of snacks in front of me. (laughs) I know. And spoiler alert, it didn't work very well. (laughs) Okay. So phase one, this is the normalization period or the control period. The young men were in great spirits as they got to know each other and they felt excited about being able to contribute to the war efforts without actually going to combat and having to kill other people. They had a uniform. It was blue pants, crisp white shirts, and sturdy walking shoes that distinguished themselves from others on campus. And that helped contribute to this feeling of duty or purpose. They were allowed to take university courses. I read that one actually finished the coursework required to get into law school. So that was a huge bonus for some of them. And remember that they were were selected from hundreds of candidates because of their mental and physical fitness. So they really felt like 
a sports team. They had purpose and camaraderie and what they were doing was important. And at this stage, they're well-fed. So they're getting 3,200 calories per day. And during this first phase, they had a lot of energy. So many participants volunteered at local community centers. They participated in local plays, music productions, and just explored the city of Minnesota. Save your energy. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Take some naps. You're going to need them. Okay, things started to go downhill pretty quickly during the semi-starvation period. The men were given two meals from Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. and one large meal on Sundays around 12.45 p.m. The goal was that the participants would lose about 2.5 pounds per week, which is pretty high for anyone really, but it's also important to remember that these men were already very lean when they started the experiment. They were active, healthy young men at their baseline weight, and they're maintaining a pretty high level of activity as well. And just to remind you, this is about 1,800 calories. Right. The semi-starvation period a day. So pretty quickly, the mood changed. Food is a basic human need, and hunger hits the brain fast. In the first few weeks, the sense of camaraderie and optimism faded to a grumble. Mealtimes became tense and emotions were high as each participant coped with starvation in their own way. Some would gobble down food as quickly as possible, and some savored every morsel, which would only infuriate the other participants (laughs) that had already gobbled down their food. That would 100% be me. (laughs) One participant, Samuel Legg, would sit apart from all the other participants and add water to his food and mash it all into a gray paste before eating it, hoping to fill his stomach longer. The odd behaviors continued to manifest. Some started collecting cookbooks and constantly looked at pictures of food. Sex dreams completely stopped. And remember, these are boys in their 20s. (laughs) And they were replaced with dreams of feasting and even of cannibalism as the semi-starvation period went on. Wow, a lot of cannibalism in this story. Well, it shows how starvation eats away at your your mm-hmm. logic, your sense of reasoning, your your values. Like it it it's the ultimate human mm-hmm. need. Others couldn't stand the sight of others eating. It would make them angry. Uh, some of them would go to the movies and be so distracted by the food around them or food that appeared in the background of scenes that they couldn't even follow the plot. The subject's sense of humor and zest for life faded almost completely. The men became more irritable, more impatient, more introverted, and less energetic. Participants reported reduced tolerance for cold, and they would request extra blankets. They experienced dizziness, hair loss, extreme fatigue, reduced coordination, and even ringing in their ears. Many withdrew from their university classes, like you said earlier, because they were unable to concentrate. The participants also lost all interest in sex and dating, which some of them had been doing during the control period. And Ansel Keys famously said about this part of the study that starved people cannot be taught democracy. And that was based on what he was observing. And then many measurable changes were also occurring during this period. So decreased basal metabolic rate, a slower metabolism a lower heart rate, a loss of body fat, also a loss of muscle mass. Um, And because the subjects were quite lean to begin with, the loss of muscle mass was more pronounced. And shrinking of heart size. 
decrease in blood volume by 10% and decreased muscle strength. Whoa. So these are all being measured. Um, quick question. Was there water intake being controlled? Maybe you said this. That is a great question. That did not come up in any of my research. But they could have unlimited black coffee and they could have unlimited gum. So I bet their water intake was unlimited okay. as well. I was just curious about That's my the guess. blood volume, like if that had anything to do with water intake or if it was strictly because of food. That's really interesting. That's a great question. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Future fact-checking Sarah here. Participants were allowed unlimited water during the experiment, but the second part of Becca's question is a little trickier to answer. I found one theory that low blood volume occurs because fasting can influence the sodium-retaining capacity of the kidneys, causing natriuresis, which is the loss of sodium in the urine. And since water follows sodium, that effect would decrease total body water and total blood volume. But if there are any blood volume experts out there, we'd love to hear from you. Okay, so here's one quote by participant Samuel Legg that describes a moment where he realized just how much the semi-starvation was affecting him. I was walking along with my buddy. It was deep into the semi-starvation and we were tired. We would look for driveways when we got to cross a street so that we wouldn't have to walk one step to get up from the road to the sidewalk. And so we would walk in the gutter for a while looking for a driveway to avoid that step up. We were tired and weak, and so we were standing at a corner waiting for a light or something, and a kid came along on a bicycle, and he was really moving, pumping away. And I looked at him and said, wow, look at that boy. He's really whizzing. And then I said to myself, I know where he's going. He's going home for supper, and I'm not. And then for a very brief moment, I hope it was brief moment, I suddenly hated the boy. I, I hate at this point to tell you this because it doesn't speak very well for me, but I remember with horror that I could feel such a thing. So utterly irrational, but there it was. The participants were slowly starting to crumble. Two volunteers broke diet and were excused from the experiment. One stopped at local shops for Sundays and malted milks, and then he later stole and ate several raw rutabagas, which can't have been good. And the other participant consumed huge amounts of gum and began eating scraps of food from the garbage. Both also suffered severe psychological distress during the semi-starvation period, resulting in brief stays in the psychiatric ward of the university hospital. Another participant broke the diet and later suffered complications that prevented his data from being included in the final assessment. And initially, the participants were allowed to chew gum, but some of the men began chewing up to 40 packs a day. Wow. And so that privilege was revoked. Another of the participants was later excluded because his pattern of weight loss was not consistent with the amount of food intake and energy expenditure. So I think they suspected some form of, of quote-unquote cheating on the experiment. And there was concern raised about excessive gum chewing. So overall, four participants were excluded during the semi-starvation period, which brought the total included in the final study to 32 participants. Okay. Hold on. Quick question. I guess it's not really a yes. question, more of a statement. If there was concern about gum chewing, then I'm guessing mm -hmm. it likely wasn't sugar-free. When would sugar-free gum have even... It must have been. If it was a calorie-controlled diet, they can't make it unlimited. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think, like, when would, like, things like aspartame and, and other sugar alternatives have been added to gum? 
Okay, that's a great fact check. I did make the assumption that it was sugar-free, but none of the articles I read specifically stated sugar-free. But if it's cal- if it has sugar in it, then that wouldn't be calorie controlled. So maybe that's why they they had to revoke okay. it. Okay, we'll fact check that. Um, yeah, because that's a when good we were thinking, well, when I was thinking, this is the 1940s. I just automatically assumed it was like juicy fruit or something like that. Right, big red, big red. And you know what? Maybe they thought that because you don't actually swallow gum that you wouldn't be getting the calories mm-hmm. even though you would be getting sugar mixed with your saliva and definitely swallowing that. For sure. I feel like it's it's possible mm. that there was a lack of understanding of how how gum chewing worked at that point. Future editing Becca here. So sugar-free gum didn't hit the market until the 1950s when a dentist by the name of Dr. Petrullis sold the idea to William Wrigley Jr. The starvation studies occurred in 1944, so it's likely that this gum did contain sugar and would have contributed to caloric intake throughout the study. Juicy fruit, which was around at this time, has about 10 kilocalories per stick of gum. Sarah mentioned that some of the participants consumed up to 40 packages of gum per day. So if each pack contained 10 pieces, that would add an additional 4,000 kilocalories to their diets. So it's no wonder that some of the participants ended up gaining weight in this semi-starvation period. Okay, so after the first participant broke the diet, a buddy system was implemented. So many participants actually enjoyed the buddy system, which meant they had to travel everywhere with a buddy. If you've ever been to like Disney World, <laughs> you've, you've done the buddy this system. This is starting to sound very handmaid's tale Totally. And many participants actually enjoyed the buddy system because they were held accountable by their partner, but also because they were becoming physically weaker. So one participant, Jasper Garner, described going to a store with a revolving door and being unable to push it open himself. And he had to wait for another person to come by and open the door and then like sneak in after them. So having the buddy system kind of helped just probably with their safety as Mm -hmm. well but they also liked it because they had a buddy. The participants were struggling through the semi-starvation phase, but they knew that they weren't actually experiencing true starvation or persecution. And they actually felt very safe and really trusted Ansel Keys. So they would regularly have conversations with him about how the study was going and how they were doing. And there were always scientists around monitoring their health. And so in follow-up interviews, the participants still had an overall positive view of the experience, even though reading about it, it sounds pretty awful. Yeah. Regardless, on July 28, 1945, the subjects were happy to see the end of the semi-starvation part, but they quickly realized that the rehabilitation period was not the feast that they had been dreaming of. In fact, it was still very restricted given their activity levels with some of the groups, the lowest. So there was the four rehabilitation diets, the lowest diet, and they all had different levels of energy. The lowest one was only 400 extra calories a day. So that would bring it from 1800 to about 2200, which is very different from the original control period of 3200. Participants were divided into the four groups, like I just mentioned, each receiving increased but still restricted amounts of calories. And this was in order to investigate the optimal number of calories for rehabilitation and further divided into subgroups with protein and vitamin supplements. 
in order to see if that would help with rehabilitation. Because that was really the ultimate goal is what's the most efficient way to rehabilitate someone who's had a period of deprivation. Mm -hmm. In the end, it was found that the most important factor in rehabilitating someone who's experienced starvation was providing adequate energy or calories. As long as the amount of an adequate amount of vitamins and proteins were present, the most reliable weight gain strategy was high caloric intake. So it didn't actually matter too much, the amount of vitamins, amount of proteins in terms of the immediate rehabilitation period. It was mostly about the energy density. So they were never fully starved. Like they were never, like food was never cut off completely for them. Never. Okay. And so when you say that caloric intake was the most important thing, Mm -hmm. Did refeeding syndrome come into play here? Like, were there issues in refeeding these participants? No, not really. Other than the great disappointment that they experienced when they were like, oh, we don't just get to eat everything we Mm -hmm. want. It was still really challenging on their bodies and their minds. And there were no, no, there was no refeeding syndrome. There was no adverse effects, but some of them did notice that they were continuing to lose weight because the small addition of food actually caused their bodies to retain less fluid. So they would like lose a little bit of water weight. So there was still weight loss occurring even in the rehabilitation period, but no records of refeeding syndrome as far as I read. Okay. Okay. You're going to like this part. During the rehabilitation phase, one participant, Samuel Legg, had a very interesting experience. His buddy from the buddy system had a friend in Minneapolis and they would sometimes go visit for dinner. And during the dinner, Leg would go outside to chop wood while everyone else ate and socialized so that he could avoid any temptations to cheat or steal food. Now, it was unclear from the description, but I believe that his buddy was not actually a study participant, but maybe a supervisor from the experiment because the supervisor or his buddy would stay inside Mm. for the meal while Samuel went outside. Yeah. I feel like it would be, it would be tricky to send a bunch of really hungry men just off into the world and expect them not to eat. I know. And it's because they were like, they were so invested in this idea of helping their country and contributing to science. And, you know, while all their friends are overseas, this is what they can do here. And most of them didn't break the diet. That's very impressive. They're very committed. It's crazy. Okay, so Samuel Legg would go cut wood outside while everyone else ate dinner inside. This particular day, Samuel Legg was feeling very weak. Not only had he undergone months of starvation, but now he was in the rehabilitation phase and it was just as terrible. And as luck would have it, Leg was actually in the lowest energy rehabilitation group. So only 400 calories more than the semi-starvation period. No relief for him, basically. He also had a mangled finger on his left hand from an incident the week before where he had dropped a car on his hand during maintenance. So he had it jacked up and then he like removed the jack and it went on his left hand oh, finger, why, pinky finger. Why are you I doing this know. type of work? What? I know everything sounds so strenuous, like he's chopping wood while everyone else eats. Take a nap and like maintaining his car. That's a lot of work. Okay, so he had crushed his finger with a car and the doctors had been suspicious of his mental health at the time. And they questioned if he did it on purpose or not. But Samuel Legg insisted that it was an accident. So 
Samuel was also experiencing extreme disappointment with his rehabilitation diet. He was only given two extra slices of bread and extra turnips and cabbage. In regards to your question earlier, he was continuing to lose weight because with this small addition of food, his body was actually retaining less fluid. And he had been dreaming of food at this point nearly every night. And even, according to the book by Todd Tucker, dreamt of cannibalism one night. So he was still in a pretty bad place, but he would not give up on this experiment because it had become his purpose during the war. And so he's out there cutting wood and he feels weak and he feels terrible and he picks up a new log with his left hand and he spreads his left hand over the top of it to steady it. And without thinking, he brings the axe down and chops off three of his Mm. fingers. I know. And I'm trying to think like, okay, so he's probably right-handed. So he's the axe in his right hand and then he's steadying the log with his left hand because he never admits if it was on purpose or not. Well, I'll read a quote in a second. But I was just trying to think through how it happened. Either it was on purpose. Or just absent-minded. Yeah, absent-minded. He was probably in a very big daze at this point. Totally. Just not even thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is what he said after, after the fact. I admit to being crazy messed up at the time. I am not ready to say that I did it on purpose, and I'm not ready to say I didn't. Whoa. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think he was just, it was just such brain fog, so not... Or maybe he was aware of what might happen and just didn't care. Like there just wasn't a lot of, I don't know. Was this the same, we'll never was know. This the same hand that he had injured before? Uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was his left hand. Poor guy. Um, I the know. Three, uh, I don't even know if this is a good question to ask, but like maybe <laughs> he was cutting off the fingers because they hurt. Could have been part yeah. of it. We'll never know. I think he passed out right after. Okay, the study finally ended on October 20th, 1945, and participants were able to leave and eat whatever the heck they wanted. Some of the participants had gone from about 150 pounds at the start of the experiment to 100 pounds during that period of a year, really, but the three-month control, so more like nine Mm -hmm. months. And the pictures are really shocking. We'll have a couple on our Instagram, but you can also just do a Google search for some of the more shocking ones, and they're pretty hard to look at. Somehow, though, Ansel Keys was able to convince 12 of the participants to stay on for another eight weeks and track them as they went into the period of unrestricted eating. Okay, somebody needs to check their mental health again. <laughs> I know. They're like, yeah, we'll stay. It's been great. There's probably money involved. Does it, does it mention sure. money at any? Oh. No. I know. I wonder if they were paid for their time or if it was just... Because I think we might be underestimating the amount of guilt that someone might feel knowing that everyone else is overseas fighting and they object to the idea of killing someone else. So they're here in America, but they still really want to do their part. For sure. So it might have been unpaid. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I can, I'll, I'll try to fact check if people in the civil public service were paid. Future fact-checking Sarah here. The Civilian Public Service was a volunteer program, so they were not paid. So one of the most interesting parts of this study is the long-term impacts that semi-starvation had on these men and their relationship with food. The participants were released without any instructions about how to eat once they were out in the world, beyond being told not to overeat on day one. Subjects reported strong, insatiable, sensations of hunger, even after returning to their pre-experiment body weight. 
and they all regained more than they had lost. One subject was sent to the hospital to have his stomach pumped after he overate too much in the early days. My goodness. One participant, Harold Blickenstaff, said that he couldn't satisfy his craving for hunger by filling his stomach. Another participant, Jasper Garner, described it as a year-long cavity that needed to be filled. And estimates, estimates for full recovery ranged from two months to two years. But in follow-up interviews, none of the men believed that there were any negative long-term health effects from participating in the study. So this kind of just talks to the, the mental aspect of hunger as well. Yeah. Even when physically their stomachs were full enough, there was a, such a huge disconnect with the hunger cues and the ability to satisfy their hunger. And they didn't associate it at all with starving for a year. Right. Which is interesting because to me, I'm like, well, there probably were long-term health effects, but maybe they weren't recognized as health effects or they weren't seen as like a big deal to the men mm-hmm. or they really, it's, it's pretty astounding that most of them viewed this time as a really positive, important experience for them. For sure. And these feelings, and, and maybe you will get into this later, but not associating what's actually happening to their body with what they've been putting into it, I feel like it also has mm. some ties to what happens with, in diet culture today. Absolutely. I do get into that a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. All right. And this, this same phenomenon, it's called hyperphagic behavior, but overeating after a period of deprivation um, with the insatiable or like unsatisfiable, I guess is what how you describe insatiable hunger and the complete disconnect with hunger cues was also seen across Europe after the war. Unfortunately, though, because the study ended after the war had ended, the participants weren't able to contribute to the war relief efforts as much as they had hoped to. Ah, what a bummer. I know. After all that, the final results of the study were released nearly five years later in 1950 as a two-volume, 1,385-page book entitled The Biology of Human Starvation. It was the first comprehensive record of the physiological and psychological effects of starvation and refeeding. And to this day, it remains the most comprehensive scientific examination of the effects of starvation. Given the modern ethical restrictions on this type of study that Becca discussed earlier, it is unlikely that such a study will ever be reproduced. But luckily... The work contains all the raw data of the experiment, so any researcher can use this data. And this was actually pretty groundbreaking because at the time, in 1950, it was not common practice to release your raw data. So that was something that Ansel Keys felt was important, and he clearly stated in the work that the tables of measurements provide detailed data which may be used by other investigators for further analysis. So he was a bit of a trailblazer in in data sharing. No kidding. And so this is coming back to your point about diet culture. And I think it's so interesting because by the standards of mainstream diets, the semi-starvation diet for these men, 1,800 calories, wouldn't be considered that restrictive. Mm -hmm. But yet it had these hugely significant, long-lasting mental and physical impacts on these previously super healthy young men. Not just feelings of hunger, but changes in temperament and personality and the development of food obsession. And these were men that had no history of anxiety or depression, no history of deprivation of any sort. And they were still 
profoundly impacted by this experiment. And so it's really interesting to think about this in the context of of diet culture and when, you know, the goal of losing weight is actually fairly common, especially in the media, especially on social media and even among friends and family, like talking about weight loss or new diets is common. But I hope that this story was able to illustrate that calorie restriction is no joke and the results can, there can be significant short-term and long-term impacts. So I have to say this, but if, if weight loss is one of your personal goals right now, see a registered dietitian that can help you make sustainable changes and do it safely. Yeah. Great take home. Honestly, I am pretty shocked. I thought that they experienced like true starvation and that they were deprived of more than half of the calories that they were consuming um, previously. So it is kind of wild that they weren't starving. They were just put on reduced diets. And had to maintain an active, like they were in a a serious calorie deficit each Mm -hmm. day. It, It really does make you think about the harms that people who are constantly on diets right now are doing potentially mm-hmm. to their bodies. Yeah, things like weight cycling mm-hmm. have pretty well-known negative long-term effects, but it's still a very common thing in our society. Mm-hmm. It's sad. It is sad, but also so fascinating. And like, although this study would never be able to happen now, this has definitely contributed a lot to what we know today about this type of stuff and and has obviously guided a lot of research after it. Totally. And it still has significant clinical implications. Like this is still used. Some of this, the knowledge gained from this study is still used in eating disorder treatment, in refeeding syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. So that's it. Well done. Fascinating story. So good. I really enjoyed researching that. And I mean, check out some of the sources that we've linked because they are really good reads. Wow. That I mean... It was so scandalous. Like, I just, I really loved hearing about that. I feel bad for that guy's three fingers, but. I know. And I think because the men were, they wanted to be there and they have in, even in their reflections, 60 years later, they have positive memories of this time, even though it was hard. Mm -hmm. Some of them even said they would do it again. Really? Given the chance, if they were 20 again, would they do it again? Yes. Hmm. Some of them. So I think that makes it even more interesting, that aspect of it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you couldn't pay me to do this study. Oh my gosh, a whole year with no privacy, being constantly monitored and not being able to eat what I want? No, thank you. Yeah, or there would be a very high, high price tag on it. Very high. (laughs) Millions and millions. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I do have a quick outlandish teaser question for you. For okay. next episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sarah, would you yes. ever do a coffee enema? Oh my God. So coffee up my butt. Up your butt. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would not. <laughs> oh my gosh. I've heard of them though. No, I wouldn't do one. No. Okay. Would you? No, no I wouldn't. <laughs> I And I remember watching, it was the Kardashians a couple of years ago and, and the sisters go and they get like, I think it's an oil enema. And I just that remember- disgusting. I think it was Courtney was complaining about her butt leaking for days afterwards. Oh. So yeah, no, oil. I wouldn't. 
And I should say that next episode isn't about putting coffee up your butt specifically, but this is just a very high-level teaser. (laughs) Yes, I'm interested. Keep you guessing. All right. We'll see you next week, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dietetics After Dark. You can find all the references and materials used to put this podcast together in our show notes at dieteticsafterdark.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our show. For more information, follow us on Instagram at dieteticsafterdark. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at dieteticsafterdark at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.